All right, we are in 1 Samuel, our series Heart and House. So uh, if you've been following along, you'll know that we're just about to go into 1 Samuel 25. And uh, I just want to zoom right out, okay? I want to just give us a little bit of perspective. Imagine it's like Google Earth, okay? You're zoomed in on a particular street or house even, and suddenly you zoom right back to see exactly where we're at. Okay, where are we at the, in the big story of the Bible here? Because sometimes I think we can look at these stories, we look at them in isolation, and we think, oh, what kind of like nice things can we gather from this little story in this chapter? When actually God is revealing something much bigger, much greater, much mightier than we could ever imagine in these pages. And it can be so helpful just to draw out and go, okay, this is where we are. And this is what God has been doing so far. And this is the direction. And in amongst the mess that we often see in these stories, we see God's plan at work. So it began with Adam and Eve. You remember them in the garden? And the garden was the first ever temple. And Adam and Eve, before the fall, were everything that they were supposed to be. They were close with God, worshipping God, living to the glory of God in the garden. And he had, God had instructed them to be fruitful and multiply. And so the whole idea was not that they would stay in Eden and just relax and chill and listen to vibrations and um, it was that they were to be fruitful in other words they were to work the land and to see that land multiply so the wilderness beyond the garden of eden was to be cultivated the one thing of course that they couldn't do was to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil now the mess of sin showed itself quickly after Genesis 3, after the fall, when they had eaten from the fruit. There's suffering, there's pain, there's shame, there's backstabbing, there's murder, there's stealing, and general all-round selfishness. God says, enough, enough with Noah. He says, look, we're gonna start again. And so he puts his faith in God, Noah does, and we see this flood. And after the flood, it doesn't take long for us to realise, ah, Noah has messed up too. He gets, he gets drunk and he's found naked in a tent. Hmm. Fast forward quite a bit, we get to Abraham and Sarah. And they're called out of a place called the Ur of Chaldeans. And they are to establish a nation that blesses the nations and one day they'll enter into a land, this nation, and that land was to be a fruitful land, like Eden was. And so the plan for Israel right from the beginning was to be a nation that was fruitful to bless other nations with fruitfulness. They were to be gardeners cultivating to the glory of God. Gardeners to the glory of God. Fast forward again. Moses, he leads them out of Egypt after the people had been enslaved and they grow in number in Egypt. You remember Joseph and his brothers were caught up in Egypt and then suddenly there's this massive growth of people within the nation and eventually 
God leads Moses to take them out of Egypt and they cross over the Red Sea. God parts the sea, defeats their enemies and they move over onto the other side. And then they're in the wilderness, not the garden, but the wilderness. And they're waiting. They're waiting to get into this Eden-like land, Israel. Because they're looking, God is, going to, is looking to take them back to a fruitful place in Eden-like Israel. And they wait, and they wait. And they're given the tabernacle. And they're given instructions for how to build this tabernacle where the presence of God was to dwell. And at the heart of this place, there's the Ark of the Covenant, which the law was put inside that God had been given. Uh, sorry, God had given Moses. And they shaped their whole existence, the whole camp around this tabernacle. Because at the centre was worship. It was to be Eden-like worship because Eden was the first temple and the tabernacle was filled with garden imagery. Deliberate sign that they were to have Eden-like worship. Unfortunately, Moses' generation weren't able to go into the land because they'd been disobedient. They didn't have the faith to believe that they could take on the giants of the land. And so it wasn't until the next generation, to Joshua's generation, that they enter in. And remember, if you were with us a couple of years ago when we were just starting out, we did a series on Joshua and we saw that Joshua, whose name is the same name, yet but in Hebrew for Jesus, is like a saviour figure who goes and leads them into the land courageously. But even Joshua doesn't do everything that they're supposed to do. He doesn't return them to a place of holy worship because he's unwilling to do everything that God's asked him to do. Didn't go that last step. And then we see the period of the judges. Are you with me still? And in the period of the judges, we see this season, this time where, unfortunately, people's group, uh, God's people become divisive quite separated, it becomes very tribal. And in that season, we see all kinds of sin. They start worshipping other gods, doing things they shouldn't be doing. And then, at the beginning of this book, 1 Samuel, here we go, we see Samuel is born to Hannah. And he's like a little beacon of hope, this prophet and priest. And through Samuel, God begins to establish a nation again that is pointing back to Eden and pointing forward to a new creation. But we'll get there in a minute. David is the second king to Saul. He's not quite appointed king yet where we are. Saul is still there and Saul is still hunting him down. Because Saul is desperate to hold on to the throne, no matter what. To the point that he is actually going against the will of God, quite deliberately. So he can hold on to his own throne, instead of making much of God, who is the true and ultimate king. And now David's getting hunted down. And that's where we join him. So really, what have we got here? When we come to this passage and 
uh, chapters 25 and 26. Well, it looks messy. David's been on the run. We don't know quite what's going to happen next. But what we do know is that God, through David, is establishing a kingdom. A kingdom that will be all about God. Because in David, he finds a king whose heart is after God. All the other kings take, take, take. But he is a king who wants to give, give, give. Like God has given so generously to us. Because God, if we go all the way back to the garden, is the one who has given so generously to us. He gives, he says, take whatever you want from the garden. So turn with me to chapter 25, 1 Samuel, chapter 25. I hope that helped, just giving you a little bit of context of where we're at. Um, I think so often we read the Bible and we sometimes just like flick through and we go, oh, this one, I'm going to read about this today. But we don't know the context of the story. So it's just so important that we, we know what God's big story is when we're reading through these passages. All right, let me just read from the first few verses. Chapter 25. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. A certain man in Maon, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was intelligent and beautiful, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent his young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not ill treat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favourable towards men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal, Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal, Nabal answered David's servants. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered from my shooters and give it to men coming from whom knows where? David's men turned round and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did. And David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed behind with the supplies. We'll pick up the rest of the story in a minute. We had a summer holiday in Inverness this year in the Highlands. We cheer from Johnny there. And um, it was this lovely house we're staying at, friends of ours, and they're quite into their gardening. And their garden is full of fruit and vegetables. I mean, I couldn't believe that. I'm going, how on earth do they have the time to do this? 
And we're wandering around the gardens thinking, wow, wouldn't it be great if we could have some of this and maybe use some of this for uh, the food that we're going to be making? And not much later, went into the house, found this amazing note. Not only is there cookie dough in the freezer, hello, but you can help yourself to whatever is in the garden. Just go for it. And that is kind of like what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, go for it. God gave them this glorious garden. And while they were there, they were to steward it, keep it. It was given by him, but they were to then steward it. Here's this beautiful garden, help yourselves. Except fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because God is this generous giver. And this image of gardening is actually throughout the whole of Scripture. It's not just in, in Genesis 1 and 2. You can actually pick it up and follow it all the way through. He wants this garden imagery to stick with us. And actually, when you read the Gospels, it really comes to a head. You start to read about what Jesus says about gardening, and everything that's been talked about from Genesis all the way through makes perfect sense in what Christ brings and talks about in gardening. Nabal, who's a main character in David's story here in chapter 25, was another Saul. He was another Adam. We see that the words good and evil come up, paired together, all the way through chapters 22 through 25. And we get another one here. It's a, it's a, a kind of alarm when these two words come together, that this is a temptation passage. And what's really interesting about this passage, it's not just a, we don't just get this alarm that says this is a temptation passage, look out. But we also see that Nabal is living in an Edenic type land. He's, he's living in a kind of garden of Eden. How do I know that? Because it's, he's in Carmel one of the most fruitful parts of Israel. So here you have Nabal, and man, things are going for this guy. This is Moan's minted man. Everyone would have known about this guy. He owned so much stuff. He was the, the billionaire of his day in that area. And you think, wow, this guy, this guy must be pretty special. And this word Carmel, means vineyard, orchard, or garden. But what does he do with his garden? Is he generous, like God commanded Adam and Eve to be? To be fruitful and multiply, to go into the wilderness and spread this, this glorious garden around the world? Is that what he's doing? Or is he keeping it to himself? David in 25.11 politely asks, Whatever you find to hand. You remember, David and his men are desperate. They're on the run. These guys need some help. And this is sheep shearing season, by the way, which is kind of, kind of a big deal. This means you're supposed to feast. And you're not only supposed to feast, you're supposed to invite people from around to come and join you, particularly if you're wealthy, you're supposed to share. And that's what the law had said. Even... It says in Leviticus, to foreigners and strangers. Yet here comes David, Israel's future king. He's got nothing and his men are hungry. And Nabal says, no chance. Sorry, pal. 
no food for you, I just want to party. And I've got my team here and I'm not really interested. It'd be a bit like one of us at Christmas time hearing that there's a family or someone in the church who doesn't have much for Christmas, don't have anything in a cupboard. You hear that, you're in conversation with them. And instead of inviting them around, you say, well, to be honest with you, I just want family time. Like, this is a big day for us, it's really important. Um, sorry. David is even doing this in line with the law because Samuel has just passed away. Samuel, this brilliant priest and prophet, a great hope, a sign of hope that Israel had had for all these years, the one that God spoke through when things were happening for good. Samuel was generally been at the heart of it, hasn't he, in this last 25 chapters? And yet, here he is, passed away, and what happens is when a priest passes away, when a priest dies, a high priest in Israel, then at that moment, the refu- if you're a, a refugee, if you're someone who has uh, been sent away from home, this is a kind of moment where you can come home. This is a moment where you can go back to your hometown and be welcomed, or you could be welcomed by where someone, a, a town around you, you could go to it, and they, sh- they need to give you refuge. That's what it tells us in Leviticus. And that's in Leviticus 19.33 through 34, if you're interested, maybe. Um, and so this is a real hospitality moment. This is a moment where not only is there a festival on and you're supposed to invite people in, but Samuel has died. And so this moment for inviting in refugees, people who are uh, lost and away from home, who have been chased out of town, people like David and his men, are supposed to be invited in. Nabal, Nabal doesn't do it. Have you noticed how important hospitality is to God in the Bible? It's huge. It's actually one of the qualifications for being an elder in the church. You need to be hospitable. Jesus came and ate with sinners, tax collectors, in a context where eating together meant accepting and welcoming someone. Jesus uses banquets, feasts, and places of honour in banquets as teaching aids. He's helping us to see that the welcome of God is for all. And of course, he invites us to his table, doesn't he? To his wedding banquet. So, Scripture comes to head that we would be his bride that we would be welcome to the wedding feast and be joined to him forever. And then we will get to enjoy him and enjoy all his generosity forever. Enjoy being with the king who loves us. It's been sobering seeing images of 9-11 again this week, 20 years on. I think anyone who can remember it, I can't believe I'm even saying that, that's how young some of you are in here. Anyone who can remember it will know exactly where they were, what they were doing. It was a really significant moment. But one of the things I really loved this week was hearing some of the heartwarming stories that I'd never heard before. I don't know if you saw the one on the BBC website um, about 
the ship captains who had basically done this huge evacuation from Manhattan, biggest ever uh, evacuation from, uh, uh, from land by boat. Just extraordinary, the sacrifices they all put in and, and just the call for help, they just went. But possibly my favourite is about Gander. Do you know where Gander is? I'd never heard of it. It's a place in Newfoundland. Canada were asked to take all of these planes that were still in the air when they wanted to clear American airspace, when they realised something bad was going on. And so Canada said, yeah, we'll do that. And Gander was one of the airstrips that accepted all these planes. 38 international flights, huge planes arriving. They reckon about 7,000 people arrived in Gander that day. Gander's a small town in the middle of nowhere. What do you do with 7,000 people when they all arrive? Well, they didn't know. Their authorities are like, what do we now do? <laughs> we have a tiny airstrip here, really, with very little places to take these guys. Town Hall's not going to do it. But people from all around just kept coming, picking people up, want to stay at our place. We'll feed you, stay as long as you need to stay until you can get a flight out of here. Come on, come with us. That's the kind of hospitality that God loves. We, we see someone in need and you just go, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to invite them in. I'm going to feed them. I'm going to give them a place to rest their heads. And it's the kind of hospitality that David could have done with here. The closest equivalent, I think, would be the kind of Christmas example. So let me just ask you that one more time. Would you do it? It's a big family day. It's really important to you. You want to protect it. If there was someone in need, would you take them in? Would you feed them? Here comes David's second big moment of temptation. The last one, he uh, took away a piece of... Uh, the robe of Saul in that cave. Do you remember last week? Well, here comes the second one. He didn't, he didn't kill Saul. He had the opportunity to, but he did take this corner of the robe last week. Um, but this week, he's got a, another temptation because he is raging. Nabal has just slighted him. He's just been so rude towards him. And he and his men are hungry. And they are going after them. They strap on their swords and they run towards Nabal. Nabal. It's amazing how in a, a place of temptation like that, when, when you're angry about something, it is so difficult to remain clear and self-controlled. Well, David was being tempted in so many ways here. And God is gracious to us when we are being tempted. And I want us to remember that he always offers us an escape. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So that's a promise from God. There's no temptation that is beyond you. You always have a choice. 
And God gives David a particularly gracious way out here in Abigail. So let me read on from verse 14. It says, One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not ill-treat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sayers of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins and 200 cakes. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending towards her and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. Do you think he's angry? When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may my Lord be like Nabal and let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. She then goes on and gives this incredibly persuasive uh, speech. But what boldness she has, what courage she has. She's intelligent and she's quick to act. And what we see here is 400 hungry men, okay, and one woman who is willing to come out and face them and persuade them to do something different. That is the kind of boldness we need, isn't it? Willing to do the right thing, even when it's risky, and to approach and say, yeah, this is, this is the right thing to do right here. Abigail's persuasive speech, verse 31, sounded just like David's to Saul in the previous chapter. So what have we got here? Well, we've really got a David helping David in a moment of temptation. Abigail is like David in so many ways. And she says, look, you need to avoid the blood guilt and the grasping of power through violence. Wait on God instead. So what does it look like to be fruitful, to be a generous giver in a moment like this? When you're angry, when someone's wronged you, how do you respond? How does David respond? How does he respond when someone rightly confronts him? And we all need that. 
There is no one in this room who doesn't need confronted rightly at times. Every single one of us. How do you respond when someone confronts you and says, look, Ian, mate, you got that one wrong, okay? I know you're angry, but you need to calm down <laughs> because right now you're about to do something really silly. How do you respond? Well, David, verses 32 to 34, recognises that Abigail is right. There's humility, even in the anger. Even when he's so frustrated and all he wants to do is charge on. He stops and he's persuaded. Now, there's something about forgiveness here that is really important. Because David essentially forgives Nabal and doesn't go and act out what he wants to act out upon him and his men. Why? How? Well, a big thing is that he doesn't just pretend that the sin didn't exist. He doesn't just say, I'm, I'm just going to forget that it happened. He trusts in the justice of God. He is wholeheartedly committed to trusting that God is just, believing that God deals with all the sin of the world. So when we talk about being gracious or forgiving people, we can do that, but we can only do that because we know that God will deal with that sin. It's not as simple as Christian forgiveness and Christian love isn't as simple as just pretending it didn't happen. Because, you know, deep down, that's not dealt with. You need to know that God will deal with it. And that, because it appeases his anger, should certainly appease your anger. The Apostle Paul wrote to believers in and around Ephesus in chapter 4, verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. What's he saying? He's saying that you can forgive because God has forgiven your sins. Get real with your own sins and that Jesus, through the shedding of his own blood, has forgiven you, then you will be able to forgive others because you know that justice will be done either on Christ on the cross or if, the, if there is pride and they don't turn to God, they will face it themselves. And that's what happens here. Nabal, Nabal offered no apology and his fate should be a warning to all of us. Choose to go your own way and not God's. We end up under God's righteous judgment. In verse 38, read, God stuck, eh, eh, stuck, doesn't say that, struck, missing an R there, God struck Nabal and he died. We don't know how it happened, but the message is clear. Pride leads to death. But there is also a warning here for David and for the rest of us. David sends servants, verse 40, to take Abigail as his wife. But you'll remember, David is already married. So what's going on here is, is God saying, yeah, I'm fine with, 
with polygamy. No, he's not. David actually is beginning something here that becomes the downfall, not only for him in many ways, but for the kings that follow him. His son Solomon, who ends up with a thousand wives and concubines. God calls us to be garden givers, not takers. And you see that? The language in verse 40 there was to send a servant to take Abigail. No, David gets it wrong here. God is a giver and we should be givers, garden givers, people who are not takers. The people of God are not stingy but generous. Jesus said this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Jesus, in the end, is the one Mary mistakes as the gardener on the third day. His generosity is unparalleled. He gives of himself and then offers to us his inheritance rights. And we become sons and daughters of God. There is no generosity like it. Jesus is the ultimate generous king, the ultimate generous priest, the priest that guards the garden. He welcomes us into the garden again, into his presence, into the presence of God to enjoy his generosity forever. And so if we want to follow this garden story all the way through, I wish I could tell you all about it. There's so much. But Jesus ultimately is the one who invites us back into that fruitful space, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. Are you a garden giver? That's chapter 25 in Nabal. But what about chapter 26 and Saul when he arrives back on the scene? Let me just read a few verses from chapter 26 to grab your Bibles if you have them. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hikalat, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hikalat facing Jeshimon. But David stayed in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army camped around him. David then asked Ahimelech, the Hittite, and Abishai, son of Zenua, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul. I'll go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul, lying asleep inside the camp, with his spear stuck 
in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying round him. Abishai said to David, Today God has given your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Saul was supposed to be God's king, priestly in nature, cleansing and guarding the temple presence of Israel. Remember, Israel is supposed to be this new Eden. But he is doing pretty much the exact opposite. He has a spear stuck in the ground next to him. Now that's quite revealing because those spears were the weapon of choice for the Philistines and the other nations around them. And he wanted to be like one of them, one of those kings with mighty, mighty armies. He wanted to lead like that. And actually he's working against God's plans by now. He's maintaining his own power and kingdom and he's doing it at all costs. He's even murdering whole cities of priests. The very people anointed to protect and guard the nation's worship. Saul is in a position where he wants everything to be shaped around him. Chapter 26, verse 25, the exact meaning there of the army being encircled around him is that in concentric circles they would all be guarding him. Circle, 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 circle. Right in the middle of the camp, Saul inside a tent. Now if you know anything about Israel in that period, you'll know that in the centre of the camp should have been the Ark of the Covenant, which signified the presence of God. But they lost the Ark of the Covenant. And instead, in the centre was Saul. Saul was making it all about him. Saul isn't just, you know, a little bit out here. Saul is totally gone working against God, doing anything he can to hold on to his own power. And I am concerned about our culture and the way that we think about leadership. I'm concerned about the way that we think about leadership even in the church. Because I think too often we do this. We do what Saul has done here. We create little personality cults. And all of us can be guilty of that. Instead of working together to the glory of God, instead of doing it in community, instead of having plurality in our leadership, we make it all about ourselves, we make it all about one person. Ministry, I think, has become less and less about local ministry to local people and more about an ambition for platforming yourself. I think the internet hasn't helped. I think the internet is gloriously good in so many ways and can be used for evil. It's like any of these things. And I think often we've been easily distracted. It's shocking to us that it happens in churches, but I think we're all susceptible to this. 
Success and self-improvement just drive so much of our culture. Are you listening to it? What is driving you? Why do you do things? I think we need to keep coming back to that question. Why do we do this or that? Why do you get up early to do workouts? Why is it do you want to be a preacher? Why is it do you want to lead the kids' ministry? Why? Is it really for the glory of God? Is it really because you want to be a glory giver? Is it really because you want to return to what God designed you to be, which is someone who lives to the glory of God? That's what we say we exist for as a church. God's glory and Glasgow's good. There's not anything about me or you there, is there? There's not anything about me, me, me. No, it's... We see that in in the previous chapter with Nabal. He manages to use me and I eight times in just a few verses. He too was guilty of this, living to the glory of self instead of living to the glory of God. So we've got to keep coming back to that question. Why am I doing this? What's my motivation? Is it truly for God's glory? Or is there something else going on? And we've got to keep praying about that. And keep praying about that, and keep praying about that. Less of me, and more of you, Lord. We often end up in a place, don't we, that becomes all about us, even though it might have started for the right reasons. And so I think we just got to keep helping each other here. And remember the way that Abigail confronted David in the previous chapter. We've got to be good with that. We've got to be all right with that. If somebody notices it in your life, somebody who loves you, let them tell you that. I'm just wondering, Ian, are you really making this about you? What? (laughs) If that's my reaction, maybe there's an issue. We've got to be able to say these things to one another and help each other. Because I think, let's be honest, so often we creep into pride instead of being humble before God and truly living for his glory. In verses 13 and 14, it is interesting that it is Abner that is addressed. It doesn't directly address Saul. Did Did we notice that? In fact, we didn't get up to that, didn't we, in the reading. But what happens is um, Abner, who is supposed to be the, the commander of the army and looking after Saul, he is the one that David addresses. And he essentially says, look, you failed. You're sleeping on the job. And why is he concerned about that? Well, he's pointing out that that priestly role that you've taken up for the wrong king You're failing. And the ultimate reason he's saying that is that the priestly role in the kingdom of God in Israel has been abandoned. They're supposed to be protecting and treasuring their worship and the presence of God. They're supposed to be leading one another into his presence and instead 
I'm looking more like Eden. You're looking more like a wilderness where the presence of God is gone and you're just doing whatever you want for the glory of this king. Verse 17, Saul recognizes David's voice and he says, my son. And it suggests that he wants to reconcile, doesn't it? Back to the good old days, the heart playing days. Great, here he is. We're gonna reconcile with one another. I'm gonna forgive him, this is gonna be great. But we've seen this before from Saul and David's wise to it. I think we even have to ask, why are we asking for forgiveness? How often do we only ask for forgiveness when we get caught out? Because really that's what's happening here. Saul only asked for forgiveness here because he recognises that David was able to sneak in, take his spear, meaning he could have killed him again, and he didn't. He walked out and then he speaks to him from a great distance, starting with Abner and then Saul. And so here we have this scene, this dramatic scene, where Saul is is apologising from a distance. He's shouting his apology in front of this whole army. Why is he doing it? He's doing it because he got caught. He's doing it because he could have taken him out again. And we'll see that Saul isn't really repentant here. We've got to ask, keep asking that question. Why? Even when we're asking someone for forgiveness. Are you asking them for forgiveness because you got caught? Or are you asking for forgiveness because you truly mean it and you want to change? Do you truly want to change? There's a great difference between forgiveness that leads to reconciliation and a forgiveness that just appeases our own guilt in a moment. And that's what Saul is doing here. Maybe you're married and you did that thing that they asked you not to do again. Would you have really cared if they hadn't caught you? Would you have confessed and said, oh, I'm so sorry I did this thing? Shouldn't have done it. Are you humble enough to do that? Or is it really only when your pride is pricked, when you get caught out, that you, need to, you feel the need to say sorry? We need to have hearts like David, hearts that are, are willing to be laid bare, not live for the glory of self, but to the glory of God. Cultivate gardens in our lives. If our life was a garden, cultivating it so that we can keep giving away to others. Let that be your motivation. I wanna, I wanna be a fruitful person. I wanna read the word of God. I wanna be disciplined in doing that. I wanna pray regularly because I wanna live for God's glory and good of people around me. Be generous to people around me. Saul had become another Adam, picking from the tree of knowledge of good and evil to build his own kingdom in the name of Israel. What kingdom are we building? Are we building a kingdom to the glory of God or is it to the glory of self? building a kingdom in order to be generous like God has been generous to us or are we just building a kingdom so that we can enjoy it for ourselves like Nabal